Alright, so this might turn out to be a bit of a short lecture, since this is a section of the Iliad that I don't normally teach, but thought that it would be more convenient to teach it than try and incorporate something weird. Um, and our schedule being especially strange this semester, I decided to throw in a little bit more. Um, most of the students like reading the Iliad um, and want more of it, so this is sort of an opportunity, but this is kind of a weird cross-section. Um, so I apologize in advance for this. In addition, the other lectures from the Iliad were recorded um, earlier than this one, so this one is definitely going to be a little bit out of place. Um, but I do want to teach this particular section because there are like two really important scenes um, and two really important dynamics that I want to focus on here. Um, specifically, I want to talk about Zeus and his relationship to the gods, as it's revealed especially in the Iliad 8 and in the Iliad 14. Um, and I also want to talk about Achilles and the whole offer, um, the sort of diplomatic negotiation that is pitched by Agamemnon in uh, Book 9. Um, those are the sort of the, the key things that I want to touch on. Most of the other stuff is, is sort of like plot development and gets us from the earlier portion of the epic to the, the, new, the second portion, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. Um, so this is sort of transitional. Um, like, we do not read the whole of the Iliad in here. We're going to skip, like, over the... The, the weird cross-section we're doing here is Iliad 8 to Iliad 15, but we're skipping 10 through 13. Like, that's the the biggest part chunk of the myth that we are, in fact, like, glossing over and ignoring. Um, and as a result, again, this section is super weird as a result. Um, but the basic thrust you should be able to keep track of. Like, th this is a weird section in general. Um, we've watched Diomedes wreck his way through the Trojan lines. We've seen him, like, attack Paris and get rebuffed by Apollo. Um, we've seen his particular good day. One of the chapters that we're going to skip, um, he and Odysseus go on, like, a night raid of the Trojan forces, and they sort of, like, sneak in and steal a bunch of stuff and kill a bunch of people and then run away. Um, hit and fade tactics from the Greeks, as we should expect from Odysseus. Um, but here we get sort of this this weird reassertion um like diomedes was wrecking the trojans with the help of the greeks um and with the help of the gods um so you've got athena like informing him don't fight gods but i'm going to really empower you so you're going to like cut your way through the trojan forces and zeus picks up on this and remember that zeus's agenda here is he is agreed to grant thetis's prayer um, like Achilles asked Thetis, his mom, to make the Greeks get wrecked for a while so they all will see how much they need him. Um, and Zeus agreed, he nodded, and all the gods saw this, and they were really grumpy about it. And then they flaunt his will. Um, it's business as usual after Zeus has made this agreement, and the Greeks are, are running the show. Um, so Zeus puts his foot down here. Um, and I want to stress the, the speech that he uses to sort of reassert his own authority and power here on page 83. Listen to me, Divine One, so I can tell you what I want. What I don't want is any god, male or female, attempting to brook my word. You are all to assent, so we can get this over with. If I catch any one of you with a private plan to assist either the Greeks or Trojans, he or she will return to Olympus a crippled wreck. Unless, of course, I hurl him or her into moldy Tartarus, down into the deepest underground abyss, iron-gated and bronze-stooped, as far beneath Hades as the sky is above Earth. Then you will know who is supreme around here. Or would you like to find out now? Come on, hang a gold cable down from the sky. All you gods and goddesses holding the end couldn't drag down from sky to Earth Zeus the Master, no matter how hard you tried. But if I wanted to, I could haul up all of you with the earth itself and the very sea, then loop the cable around a spur of Olympus and the totality would hang suspended in space. That's how superior I am to gods and men. Now Zeus is making a big claim here, a huge threat, but he seems to be backed up. Like, nobody takes this lightly. Um, Zeus is basically saying, like, if you all stand on one end of a tug-of-war rope and I alone stand on the other end, I will pull all of the other gods, all of the other major gods and all the minor gods and basically everyone who lives on Olympus by myself 
up into the air and just leave you hanging there. Um, and with you, I can pull up the whole of the ocean and the whole of the earth. Like, all I need is one point fixed in space, presumably Mount Olympus, and I will move literally heaven and earth with my bare hands. And like I said, this is a really impressive boast, and they seem to take it seriously. This seems to be true. Um, the gods all basically buy this. Um, and this is an important image, because we haven't seen a whole lot of, like, measurement as far as how strong Zeus actually is in Homer. Like, Hesiod emphasizes all the time that Aegis bearing Zeus is not someone to trifle with, that you cannot escape the mind of Zeus, that he does what he wants, and that he is the single most, like, powerful being in the entire universe. Um, no one beats him. But in Homer, that's been much more ambiguous. Um, you'll remember when Thetis originally petitions Zeus, and Zeus, like, comes out saying, Oh, I am so wise, I, my plans are much greater than anything that you, Hera, have ever anticipated. And Hera's like, dude, I saw you talking to Thetis. And Zeus is like, damn it, woman! Every time, every single time, I think I've, like, managed to outsmart you. You're a step ahead of me. Um, so Zeus kind of comes off silly in that exchange, but here he comes off deadly serious. Um, the gods do not want to mess with him. If it came down to sheer force of will, sheer force of might, of power, of strength, Zeus could easily take all of the other gods put together, no contest, no problem. But notice that that's not the way that the gods typically interact with Zeus. Um, they know that he is stronger than they are, that he can beat them all up in a fair fight. Um, so instead, the way that the gods interact with Zeus is they sort of sneak around and deceive him, or coddle him, or flatter him, or manipulate him in other ways. The way that Aphrodite makes him fall in love with all these other women, and therefore he goes like running headlong after these destructive affairs that Hera is only... is eventually going to make him miserable for and notice that this is athena's move right after this big speech like rather than like being cowed and terrified which admittedly we get this line um they were stunned to silence aghast at his words it had been a masterful speech but finally gray-eyed athena spoke up well our father who art the highest we know very well your might is unyielding still we have pity for the danaean spearmen who are now destined to die an ugly death we will withdraw from the war if you command it but we will still advise the greeks so they won't all be casualties of your wrath and zeus smiling at her answered there there daughter my heart really isn't in it i want to be gentle to you child notice the interaction between zeus and athena here on the one hand, you've got Zeus saying, I am God. I can overpower all of you. I will pick you all up by a single rope and you will s lie suspended in space because none of you can fight me. And Athena's like, you know, you're right. You are the most powerful and we just want to help the Greeks. So, you know, we're going to give them advice, but we're not going to actually help them. And Zeus is like, oh, okay. Like... As much as Zeus is so much more powerful than all the gods, the way that Homer presents Zeus is he is nothing but strength. Like, he is not cun cunning. He does not see that Athena is flattering him here, that Athena is going to go behind his back and do other things, that Athena is basically saying, like, yes, we acknowledge your power, but we're going to do what we want anyway. Like, Zeus misses this. And Homer is quick to notice this. Um... So, you know, Zeus flies off to go help the Trojans, and then a little while later, on page 85, we see both Hera and Athena starting to betray him. Um, that Zeus is given this big warning, and Athena and Hera are just back to business as usual. Don't the two of us care anymore that the Greeks are being beaten? This may be the end. One single man, Priam's son of son Hector, is pushing them all to the brink of doom. His rampage is no longer bearable. Just look at how much harm he has done. And then both Athena and Hera, like, get their horses together, get their chariots together, start arming themselves, and Zeus sees them. And Zeus saw them from Ida and seethed with anger on page 87, around line 410. He sang golden-winged Iris to bear this message. Go, swift Iris, turn them back, and don't let them come face to face with me. It would not be pretty if we had to fight. 
This is my solemn word on the subject. I will maim their horses, throw them from the chariot, and smash it to bits. Not in ten circling years will they be healed of the wounds the thunderbolt will inflict. The gray-eyed one must learn what it means to fight with her father. As for Hera, I am not so angry with her, since she always opposes whatever I say. And Iris, like, gives them the message, and both of them do, in fact, turn back. But again, notice... Like, the initial response of Athena and Hera is, oh, he's just blowing smoke. Like, even though the speech has this major impact and everyone's standing aghast at Zeus's big words, Athena and Hera, like, it takes them 300 lines for them to turn on, turn on him. To basically be like, eh, I'm not that worried. Athena because, you know, Zeus is partial to her, she's, her fa she's his favorite daughter. Hera because she's Hera, she does what she wants, what is he going to do to her, he like she's his wife um but this time zeus is serious like zeus sees it zeus freaks out sends them the message says you know do not cross me i am not in the mood to trifle i will literally zap you with thunderbolts and i will destroy you like for 10 years you were going to be lying on your back with stars over your face like wondering what the heck hit you that's how hard it's gonna be um so they turn around like they they completely take apart all their chariots and they put away their horses and they put off their armaments. Like, they're not going to go forward with this. Um, Zeus's word is threatening enough, but it takes the two times for them to do it. Like, and notice what this means as far as the relationships are concerned. Like, this is also the way that, you know, fathers interact with their wives and their daughters more than when they're just gods. Like, you get the sense that, you know, Homer is observing Zeus and his relationships with his family in the same way that any normal family works. Like, yes, the man of the house, the, you know, paterfamilias, the lord of the, of the household, his word is law. And yes, he's got the might, he's got the weapons, he does what he wants, no one gainsays him. Um, but, mothers and daughters wives and concubines they get their way through other means through backdoor channels um they don't take his word seriously because they know that they can get away with shit um and tara and athena try and get away with shit and this time zeus puts his foot down nope not this time he says um so notice like notice too though that Later in this passage, in book 14, we see Hera actually ramp up the stakes. Like, as much as Zeus has stated, I am in charge, I do what I want, do not cross me, or I will wreck you, Hera takes the opportunity in the Iliad 14, like, she plays her trump card here. Like, if Zeus's trump card is... I will zap you with lightning bolts and you will not be able to recover for 10 years. Hera's trump card is I can seduce Zeus and get what I want anyway. Um, and notice the way that she does this in Iliad 14. Like, this is a big procedure. Like, she has to get real dolled up. She has to make preparations before we can successfully seduce him. Um, so in, in the, around line 160, we have Hera's we have Hera's plan here. Cow-eyed Hera mused for a while on how to trick the mind of Zeus Aegis Holder, and the plan that seemed best to her was to make herself up and go to Ida, seduce him, and then shed on his eyelids and cunning mind a sleep gentle and warm. Um, and there are steps to this. Like, first, around line 190, she goes to Aphrodite, and she, like, tricks Aphrodite into helping her, because naturally Aphrodite would not want to help Hera, who is out to help the Greeks. Um... So, Hera asks her, Give me now the sex and desire you use to subdue immortals and humans. I'm off to visit the ends of the earth, and Father Ocean and Mother Tethys, who nursed and doted on me in their house when they got me from Rhea after Zeus had exiled Kronos to the regions below. I'm going to see them and try to resolve their endless quarrel. Again, fairly neutral here. Like, Aphrodite does not have a horse in the race as far as, like, visiting the end of the earth and uh Rhea and father ocean and company um so aphrodite's on board but aphrodite gives her this fancy sash with that she unbound from her breast an ornate sash inlaid with magical charms sex is in it and desire and seductive sweet talk that fools even the wise she handed it to hera and said here put this sash in your bosom it has everything built in i predict you will accomplish what your heart desires 
So stage one of Hera's plan to snow Zeus and, you know, take advantage of him, she goes and gets the sash from Aphrodite. So now she is, like, irresistibly attractive to Zeus. Then she goes and talks to Sleep. She has to go all the way to Lemnos and meet Sleep, the brother of death. Um, and she tries to recruit Sleep. Sleep, lord of all, mortal and immortal, if ever you've listened to me before, listen now and I will be grateful forever. Lull Zeus's bright eyes to sleep for me as soon as I lie behind him in love. I will give you gifts, a handsome throne of imperishable gold that Hephaestus, my strong-armed son, will build you. It comes with a stool to rest your feet on as you sip at banquet and sip your wine. And sleep is like, nope, not touching that with a ten-foot pole. Goddess revered as Cronus's daughter, if this were any other of the gods eternal, I'd lull him to sleep without any trouble, even if it were with a river ocean, which was the origin of them all, but not Zeus. I wouldn't go near the son of Cronus, much less lull him to sleep unless he, at, he himself asked me. I learned my lesson from your last request. That day Heracles, Zeus's high-hearted son, sailed from Troy, having wasted the city. Yes, I slipped my sweet self around the mind of Zeus Aegisholder, while you brewed up storms at sea to drive his son Heracles off course to coast, far from his friends. And when Zeus woke up, was he angry? Throwing gods all over the house and looking for me especially, he would have pitched me from aether to sea, no more to be seen if night the mistress had not saved me. Note, sleep does not want part of this. Like, sleep has done this before for Hera, and sleep knows that there are consequences to messing with Zeus. Um, that if sleep ticks Zeus off again, it is going to be bad news for everyone involved. But Hera, once again, prevails over sleep. Um... Sleep, what are you worried about? Do you think that Zeus will help the Trojans and be as angry now as he was then for Heracles' his own son? Come on. Look, I'll give you one of the young graces to have and to hold and to be called your wife, Pasithea, the object of all your desire. Apparently, Sleep has been sort of eyeing Pasithea for a while, so when Hera promises Pasithea, that'll do it for Sleep. Um, so Sleep is on board. Part 2, getting Sleep on board. That is the next stage of Hera's plan, so now she is ready. She's got the sash that makes her irresistible to Zeus. She's got sleep to help her out. Now she's ready to face Zeus himself. So Hera was fast approaching Gargarus, Ida's highest peak, when Zeus saw her, and when he saw her, lust enveloped him, just as it had the first time they made love, slipping off to bed behind their parents' backs. He stood close to her and said, Hera, why have you left Olympus, and where are your horses and chariot? And Hera, with every intention to deceive, gives him the same story that she gave Aphrodite. I'm off to visit the ends of the earth, and Father Ocean, and Mother Tethys, who nursed and doted on me in their house, etc., etc., but Zeus is not paying attention. Like, Zeus does not care what story Hera comes up with. Zeus has his mind on other things. But this is, like, the weirdest speech in context. Like, Zeus is incredibly aroused by Hera and her sash of irresistible sexuality. And Zeus apparently, like, tries to tempt Hera by comparing her to all of his affairs. Like, pro tip to all of the guys listening to this, if you were trying to impress whatever girl you are talking to at this moment in time, do not lead with, you are hotter than all of the other women I have slept with. Here is a comprehensive list of them. And yet, this is exactly what Zeus does. You can go there later just as well. Let's get in bed now and make love. What a pickup line. No goddess or woman has ever made me feel so overwhelmed with lust. Not even when I fell for Ixion's wife, who bore Perithous, wise as a god, or Dene, with lovely slim ankles, who bore Perseus, a paragon of men, or the daughter of far-famed Phoenix, who bore Minos and godlike Radamanthus, or Semele, or Alcmene in Thebes, who bore Heracles, a stout-hearted son, and Semele bore Dionysus, a joy to humans, or Demeter, the fair-haired queen, or glorious Leto, or even you. I've never loved anyone as I love you now, never been in the grip of desire so sweet." Now, we can obviously make fun of, like, how ridiculous it is that, like, this is Zeus's go-to pickup line. Oh, man, Hera, you are so hot right now. You are hotter than each of these women that I've slept with. Heck, you're hotter than you've ever been before. Like, no. Obviously, Zeus has no idea how to deal with the ladies, and yet he is apparently very popular with them. No idea how that works. But I want to stress... Like, why we have this whole passage. 
Um, for one thing, I think we are supposed to think that Zeus is kind of being dumb here. Um, remember, like, he's not thinking the situation through. Hera is deceiving him. Like, he is not thinking clearly. He is thinking with his wrong brain at this point, to be blunt. Um, and Hera, because she doesn't care, like, that he is literally listing off every single woman who has ever made her jealous before, like, incomprehensive detail along with all the kids that Zeus produced as a result of this, like, this does not turn her off because her goals here are not, like, to sleep with Zeus because she really just wants to sleep with Zeus. She's just in it for her other purposes, to lull him to sleep so she can get the Greeks to win for a little while instead of watching them get wrecked by Hector. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, she's down to clown either way. Um, but the important thing for Zeus is, like, notice about his character here. Um, I suspect, although we obviously don't have any evidence here, um, I suspect that this is Zeus's pickup line for all of his women. Like, this is what he told Semele. Man, Semele, you are so much hotter than any of the other women I've slept with, or even my own wife Hera. Let's do this. Or Alcmene. Aw, oh, man, Alcmene, you have slept... You are so much hotter than all of the other women I've ever slept with. Here is a comprehensive list of all of the women who I have slept with, and how much better than you that you are. Or better than them you are. Like, Zeus has no self-awareness as Homer is depicting him here. Like, you get the sense that just Zeus is always just thinking with his dick, so to speak. Um, he is constantly impressed by whatever woman just happens to be in front of him. He has zero self-awareness, zero discipline, zero commitment, zero, like self-recognition of his own history. Of course she's the hottest woman that you have ever seen because she is the one you are seeing right now. Like, that's all that Zeus cares about here. And I think that this actually makes a really interesting contrast with what he said before about the golden thread and being able to pick up all the gods by the golden thread. Yeah, if it came down to throwing thunderbolts, Zeus would have every single one of them beat. Like, Zeus can beat up any one of the gods in a fair fight, but the fight is never fair. Like, Athena can always charm him because she's his favorite daughter. Hera can always charm him because Hera is, you know, his wife. She's hot. Um, random women can always charm him. Aphrodite always has a leg up on Zeus. Like, yeah, Zeus can absolutely beat them up, but it never comes down to beating them up. Each of these gods and goddesses has a different way of interacting with him, a different way of snowing him, a different way of getting what they want from him. Um, and that's important. Like, it's something that Zeus himself does not seem to be aware of. He certainly doesn't seem to be aware of it here, where he's totally falling for what Hera is dishing out to him. It certainly doesn't seem to be something he's aware of earlier when Athena and uh, Hera are going behind his back, even though he is, like, putting his foot down on this one. Um, like, at the same time as Zeus is the mightiest of the gods, the emphasis that Hesiod put on Zeus being, like, his mind being a steel trap, no one can evade the mind of Zeus, that is not the image that Homer is giving us here. Like, everything evades the mind of Zeus. It's not to say that Zeus is dumb, just that Zeus is constantly carried away by his passions. That is his weakness. That is his Achilles' heel, so to speak. As much as he says, you know... Like, what my word is law, and I will, you know, do what I want, and no god can gainsay me, that's really subject to what Zeus's mood is at any given moment. Zeus is always caught in the throes of some passion or another. Either his lust, or his affection, or his anger. All of these things take control of Zeus at various times in this story. And when they do, that's all that Zeus can see. Like, Zeus can only see five feet in front of his own face at any given moment. Is it a hot woman? Then he's going to sleep with him. Is it, you know, the promise of Thetis? Well, then he's going to, you know, promise, and now he's stuck doing whatever it is that Thetis wanted him to do. Um, is it his anger because he's been betrayed? Well, then all he's going to see, all he's going to feel is his anger until some greater passion takes hold of him. And notice what that says about the way that the Greeks see the world. 
that the most powerful god in the cosmos, the king, the lord of all the gods, is really temperamental. Like, he is really subject to his passions and emotions. And therefore, he is unpredictable. Um, Zeus doesn't take sides except for whatever is right in front of him at any given moment. But also notice that this isn't the only god we see acting like this. Like, only a little while later in Book 15, um, Hera and Athena have both been thoroughly chastised by Zeus, who has woken up and realized that he's been snowed, and has seen that Hector's been, like, knocked out by Ajax with this giant boulder. Um, but Hera and Athena, they're not licked yet. Like, Hera comes into the Assembly of the Gods and announces... Um, line 110 on, in book 15 we're all simpering idiots to be angry with Zeus we all want to get to him to talk him down to beat some sense into him but does he care he doesn't even notice no he sits apart secure in his supreme almighty power you'll just have to take whatever grief he dishes out to you I'm afraid that now it's Ares' turn to suffer seeing that his son whom he loves more than any mortal man his dear Ascalaphus has died in battle now notice, Hera's got a secondary objective here. She is trying to trick Ares at this point. And she almost accomplishes it. Like, Ares hears that Ascolophus has died in battle, and Ares freaks out. He smacked his muscled thighs with the flat of his hands and wailed out loud, None of you Olympians can blame me now if I go to the Greek ships and avenge my son, not even if I am to be blasted by Zeus and lie among corpses in the blood and dust. And he ordered his son's panic and rout to yoke his team while he buckled on armor. The hostility between the gods and Zeus would have reached new heights then had not Athena, afraid for them all, jumped from her throne, sped through the door, and disarmed Ares. Here again, we have a dude being his judgment completely clouded by a woman who is scheming against him. Um, and notice what this says about the Greek sort of intersexual dynamic, the dynamic between men and women. Consistently, the men are, par are portrayed as being kind of dumb, passionate, um, subject to whatever emotion they feel at that moment and carried away by it. And the women, knowing this, manipulate those passions, manipulate those emotions. But notice that Homer doesn't seem to have a sort of normative value on this. Um, as much as we've stressed in Hesiod and in our discussion of the Trojan War before this, um, that women seem to be at the center of like all the bad things that happen to men. Like, Hesiod himself emphasizes, you know, women are the worst, they are a punishment, Pandora was designed as a punishment, as a trick, and now all men suffer because they all fall head over heels in love with women who just take advantage of them all the time, who sit in their beehives like the drones and do nothing but receive all the food and all the benefit of the stuff the workers do. Um... Like, Hesiod portrays this as though women are the worst and men are the best, but Homer doesn't. Like, Homer just observes this. The fact that men are kind of the worst because they're dumb and stupid and brutish and bullish and just do whatever they want at whatever moment it is that they want to do it. The same way that, you know, Zeus does, um, like, when he promises to Thetis and then... Uh, completely violates when Hera tricks him and then Ares here falling after his son um, as we see with Diomedes and with Achilles and with Agamemnon all sort of just succumbing to whatever passion they feel at any given moment but it's the women who sort of push all those buttons who pull all those strings who have a clear head about all of this emotional stuff like Hera isn't acting because she is subject to some passion she is acting because she is clearly rationally thinking it through she has an agenda and she is totally willing to pull the strings of men's emotions to get that agenda accomplished um and we see this pretty consistently with the women in this text both hera and athena do this all the time now aphrodite is a bit of a different story like the couple of times that we've seen aphrodite so far she's either helping hera out in which case she's kind of not picking up on the fact that hera is tricking her um, and we also see her get, like, beat up by Diomedes, in which case, you know, she just, like, freaks out over a tiny little cut. Um, but what I want to stress here is that while Hesiod is absolutely down on women, and most of the Greeks are absolutely down on women, and they all have this sort of misogynistic bent that women are responsible for all the evils that happen to men, 
while you know homer does not repudiate that like again the whole trojan war was started by the vanity of the goddesses on the one hand and then the beauty of helen on the other as this trap for all men at the same time homer doesn't seem to think that this is a bad thing necessarily like hera is right to protect the greeks here and she takes advantage of her you know feminine powers over zeus to do something that is essentially a good thing like, or at least neutral in the sense of Homer. Like, Homer doesn't seem to have a strong bias in favor of either the Trojans or the Greeks in this story. He just tells it like he's called, like he sees it. Um, so he doesn't fault either Hera for deceiving Zeus with her, you know, seduction scene, or Athena for trying to go behind Zeus's back. If anything, Homer's really sympathetic to Athena, especially. Um, like, Athena always has a clear head, is never moved by passion. Remember, she's one of the ones immune to Aphrodite's wiles. And as a consequence, she comes off looking smarter and more capable than pretty much everyone else in the Divine Pantheon. Like, Athena has the best of all of the capacities. By not being subject to passion, she is able to do whatever she wants with incredible pragmatism and clarity of thought. Um, she gets shit done where Zeus can be turned aside and where Hera can be turned aside by jealousy or passion or lust or whatever. Notice that this is the defining characteristic, the defining difference between men and women to Homer. Men react, but women can in fact act of their own accord. Um, it is rare to see a man in any of Homer's works with the clear-sightedness that we see from, say, Odysseus or Athena. Um, they are the true Homeric heroes, in a sense. Even Achilles is subject to his wrath. Um, his rage masters him, overpowers him. Um, and in fact, that's probably as good a segue as we're going to get to the Iliad 9. Notice that, again, one of the major themes in this text is rage. Achilles is mastered by his rage in the earlier sections that we've talked about. When Agamemnon dishonors him, when Agamemnon takes away Briseis, like, Achilles loses his shit. He will not have anything to do with the Greek army anymore. Um, and this rage dominates him for the rest of the text until Patroclus dies and a new passion overmasters Achilles. But notice the way that Achilles talks about it in Book 9. Notice the way that the interaction between Achilles and the people who are trying to, like, petition him tends to work. So in the Iliad 9, like, the Greeks are losing the fight pretty badly. Again, Zeus has sort of possessed Hector, and Hector's now running the show. He is wrecking everyone. Athena and Hera and all of the other gods have been sidelined because Zeus made the big golden cord threat. Like, this is rapidly going downhill for the Greeks. Everything is coming up bad news for the Greeks. So Agamemnon relents, as you would expect at this point. Agamemnon is like, oh crap, we really need Achilles back in this fight. Um, what could I possibly do to get him on our side again? So he sends all of Achilles' best friends. He sends Odysseus, he sends Phoenix, and he sends Ajax especially. Now, Odysseus, he is our diplomat. Like, Odysseus is the probably cleverest Greek statesman. Um, he is good with words, he is persuasive, he knows how to tell a good story. Um, so obviously that's why you send Odysseus. Um, the fact that he's friends with Achilles just makes it that much better. Phoenix, Phoenix is practically Achilles' surrogate father, as he will explain in his big speech a little while later. As for why he sends Ajax, I have no idea. Presumably because he's, like, really strong and a good warrior. Maybe Ajax has some important relationship with Achilles. It's not clear. At any rate, he barely speaks in this entire interaction. It's mostly Odysseus and, and uh, Phoenix who do the talking. So notice, first of all, there's like a bunch of ceremony leading up to the actual conversation between Achilles and his petitioners. Um, like they have to sacrifice, they bring out all the, you know, special bowls and the holy, you know, implements. Um, Patroclus is there. He is primarily responsible for doing all the sacrificing. He serves, he sets the table, he does what Achilles tells him to do. Keep in mind that Patroclus is especially important because, again, Patroclus will become way more important um, in our next reading. Um, but notice the way that this 
like actual conversation takes place. Odysseus leads, and first he starts complimenting Achilles to your health, Achilles, for a generous feat. There is no for a generous feast. There is no shortage in Agamemnon's hut, or now here in yours, of satisfying food. But the pleasures of the table are not on our minds. We fear the worst. He goes on to explain that the Trojans are beating the crap out of the out of the Greeks. All hope is nearly lost. Um, the Trojans are getting really close to the ships, and you'll remember that was the key factor for Achilles. Um, Achilles said initially that, you know, he was going to sit out the war until the Greeks have been beaten all the way back to their ships, and then and only then is he going to join the fight. Um, so Odysseus is saying, dude, we're here. Like, the Trojans have fought us back to our ships. We need desperately for you to turn things around. Like, Agamemnon has, in fact, had his come-to-Jesus moment. He has seen the light. He realizes that you are the only thing standing between the Greeks, and total destruction at this point um now he starts his persuasive part with this speech like the greeks are getting wrecked by the trojans the time has come you said you'd fight when the greeks have been fought back to the ships well now is the time step two odysseus invokes peleus achilles's father um, so notice on page 94 around line 255, is it not true, my friend, that your father Peleus told you as he sent you off with Agamemnon, my son, as for strength, Hera and Athena will bless you if they wish, but it is up to you to control your proud spirit. A friendly heart is far better. Steer clear of scheming strife so that Greeks young and old will honor you. You have forgotten what the old man said, but you can still let go of your anger right now. So, step one for Odysseus' grand plan to convince Achilles, you promised to fight when we were fought back to the ships, and here we are, we're fought back to the ships. The Trojans are beating the crap out of us. Have you no sympathy for your brothers in arms? Step two, remember what your father told you. Your father said that you needed to control your proud spirit and that a friendly heart is far better. Um, and yet here you are sitting in your tent because of your pride. Um, you are succumbing to the weakness that your father identified. And so Odysseus achieves like two things here. Like he is specifically invoking Achilles' father to appeal to, you know, Achilles' own family and Achilles' emotion. But he's also basically saying like, you are being proud. This is too far. Like we will grant that Agamemnon slighted the crap out of you when he took back Perseus. He never should have done that. Everybody knew that was wrong. You were totally right. Like, absolutely, he screwed it up. Um, but Odysseus follows this up by saying, and now Agamemnon apologizes. He also sees the light. Agamemnon is offering you worthy gifts if you will give up your grudge. Hear me while I list the gifts he proposed in his hut. And the rest of the speech is like the swag that Achilles gets if he gives up, like, his anger and returns to the fight right now. And it's, Odysseus starts with the easy stuff. Seven unfired tripods, ten gold bars, twenty burnished cauldrons, dozen horses, solid prize-winning horses. Like, this is the swag portion of what Agamemnon is offering. Like, pure financial incentive right at the outset. Like, this is the advance gift to Achilles um, if he just nuts up and joins the fight at this point. The second set is basically the apologies. Um, seven women who do impeccable work, surpassingly beautiful women from Lesbos he chose for himself when you captured the town, and with them will be the woman he took from you, Briseis' daughter, and he will solemnly swear he never went to her bed and lay with her or did what is natural between women and men. All this you may have at once. So here is the list of swag that Achilles gets. Here is a bunch of gold and awesome goodies, also, Agamemnon returns Briseis completely untouched, completely unspoiled, no dishonor there, as well as a whole bunch of other women that he had picked for himself because, again, Agamemnon is on his knees. He realizes he screwed up. He apologizes. He wishes he could take, he could give you your honor back. He never meant to slight you in this way, and he admits, yep, you were right. You were the only thing standing between the Greeks and Oblivion. But the second part is, if anything, even longer. If it happens that the gods allow us to sack Priam's city, you may, when the Greeks are dividing the spoils, load a ship to the brim with gold and bronze, and choose for yourself the twenty Trojan women who are next in beauty to Argive Helen. 
assuming we win this fight, you also get all of the hottest women, you get all the best swag, you get all the gold, all the bronze you want, and for that matter, if we return to the rich land of Argos, you marry his daughter and he would honor you as he does Orestes, who is being reared in luxury. Agamemnon will marry any one of his daughters to you and you will basically become his surrogate son. You will get the daughter, whichever one you choose, you will get cities, you will become basically like his single most important like subject, his lord. Um, you will rule cities, basically all the cities that you want. You will rule basically as Agamemnon's honored son. You will be on level with his own like trueborn son, Orestes. Basically what Odysseus is saying here is... Agamemnon is willing to adopt you into his family. Um, he is willing to honor you higher than his own son. He is willing to give you all the swag you want, both now and at the end of the war, like, whatever. Um, just come back to the fight. He was wrong. You were right. He recognizes you are to be honored in this way. But Achilles' response is a flat-out no. Um... This is not sufficient for Achilles. Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, Odysseus the strategist, I can see that I have no choice but to speak my mind and tell you exactly how things are going to be. Either that or sit through endless sessions of people whining at me. I hate it. Like I hate hell, the man who says one thing and thinks another. So this is how I see it. I cannot imagine Agamemnon or any other Greek persuading me, not after the thanks I got for fighting this war, going up against the enemy day after day. It doesn't matter if you stay in camp or fight. In the end, everybody comes out the same. Coward and hero get the same reward. You die, whether you slack off or work. And what do I have for all my suffering, constantly putting my life on the line? Like a bird who feeds her chicks whatever she finds and goes without herself, that's what I've been like. Lying awake through sleepless nights and battle for days, soaked in blood, fighting men for their wives. I've raided twelve cities with our ships, and eleven on foot in the fertile Troad, looted them all, brought back heirlooms by the ton, and handed it all over to Atreus' son, who hung back in camp, raking it in, and distributing damn little. What Achilles is basically saying here is, I don't want to fight. Like, I got no horse in this race. I did not have to come here. As he stressed before, he was not part of Odysseus's big deal for Helen's hand. He has no reason to be here besides winning honor for himself. And he's not getting honor, so he, there's no point in fighting anymore. There's no point because everyone's going to die honored or dishonored. Like, he gets kind of emo here, to be perfectly honest, with his you die whether you slack off or work line. This whole comparison, putting myself on the line like the bird who feeds her chicks whatever she finds and goes without herself. Achilles is painting himself as, I do all the work and I reap none of the rewards. I get nothing. I conquer cities and Agamemnon gets the swag. I, you know, fight to the death and instead Agamemnon gets the honor. Um, I kill myself literally in this battle and... What do I get out of it? Like, what does it matter? Everyone just remembers how Agamemnon got all the swag, how Agamemnon, you know, slighted, we, slighted me with impunity. What matter does my honor have at this point in time? Um, but notice that it's even, like, he gets even violent as far as Agamemnon is concerned. Um, his, his anger extends farther than this. Um, and finally, he drops, like, the big threat here. At line 366, he says, Now that I don't want to fight him anymore, I will sacrifice to Zeus and all gods tomorrow, load my ships, and launch them on the sea. Take a look if you want, if you give a damn, and you'll see my fleet on the Hellespont in the early light, my men rowing hard with good weather from the sea god. I'll reach Phythia after a three-day sail. I left a lot behind when I hauled myself here, and I'll bring back more. Gold and bronze, silken wasted women, gray iron, everything except the prize of honor the warlord Agamemnon gave me, and in his insulting in arrogance took back. Achilles is going home. He's done. Screw this fight. Like, Achilles is out. Um, he has been presented with his decision, and he stresses this a little bit later in his speech. 
Um, around line 425, my mother Thetis, a moving silver grace, tells me two fates sweep me on to my death. If I stay here and fight, I'll never return home, but my glory will be undying forever. If I return home to my dear fatherland, my glory is lost, but my life will be long, and death that ends all will not catch me soon. Here's the decision for Achilles. Either fight and die and have tremendous glory, or go home and sit out my days with no glory at all but a long life ahead of me. And Achilles has decided. Long life sounds a lot better than throwing my life away for a bunch of ungrateful asshole Greeks like Agamemnon. Nothing is worth my life, he says at line 415. Not all the riches they say Troy held before the Greeks came. There's no amount of swag that is going to sway Achilles on this one. No, none at all. And as for Agamemnon's promises that he will be like his son, well, what the heck does that matter? Achilles doesn't survive this fight. He literally just said it. Like, you can promise me whatever you want from the spoils of Troy. Does not matter. I will not live to see any of them. And as for Agamemnon's promises of making his son, well, that's the most bullshit offer of all. Look at line 400. Not even if Agamemnon gave me gifts as numberless as grains of sand or dust would he persuade me or touch my heart, not until he's paid in full for all my grief. His daughter? I would not marry the daughter of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, if she was as lovely as golden Aphrodite or could weave like allied Athena. Let him choose some other Achaean, more to his lordly taste. Achilles thinks that Agamemnon's offer is crap because he thinks Agamemnon is crap. He insulted him. He profoundly insulted Achilles when he took back Briseia in his insulting arrogance. He calls him dog face again here. He doesn't dare show his dog face here. Fine, I don't want to have anything to do with him either. He cheated me, wronged me, never again. He can go to hell in peace, the half-wit that Zeus has made him. And marrying into his family, that would be a greater dishonor than an honor. Achilles wants nothing to do with Agamemnon or his stupid daughters or his stupid cities or his stupid kingdom. And he definitely doesn't want to be called Agamemnon's son. Screw that. He is going to go home and he's going to live it up while he's got time left. Because that's way better than dying to some stupid sense of honor. But notice that this is not the last word in this exchange. Phoenix is the one who gets the next speech. Phoenix, who apparently had his own fight with his own father once upon a time, who ultimately landed on Peleus's shores and ended up being a surrogate father to Achilles. But notice, Phoenix is prevailing on him not because of the swag. Like, Odysseus has offered him the swag, and Achilles says, there is no amount of swag that's going to impress me. Instead, Phoenix appeals to his morals. Phoenix says, you have to master your proud spirit, on line 510. It's not right for you to have a pitiless heart. Even the gods can bend. Superior as they are in honor, power, and every excellence, they can be turned aside from wrath when humans who have transgressed supplicate them with incense and prayers, with libations and savor of sacrifice. At line 540, he reiterates it. No one could be, blame you for being angry before. We all know stories about heroes of old, how they were furiously angry, but later on were won over with gifts or appeased with words. And he proceeds to tell this really, really long story about the Curities and the Aetolians and Meliager watching his city burn down around his ears, but he is so miffed by being cursed by his mother that he refuses to raise a hand to help. He literally watches his family and friends led off in chains, and only then, when all is lost, when the city is destroyed, when his family is enslaved, does he actually, like, stand up and fight. Everything has been lost at that point. It's too late. He can't get it back. That's what Phoenix is saying here. Don't wait until the Greeks have been destroyed, till the Trojans have wiped out everything that you love and care about. Your rage is causing you to be proud. It is appealing to your pride, and between your rage and your pride, you are inactive and you will suffer so much as a result of this. And we, we'll see in the next week that that's exactly what happens. Achilles loses something precious to him, and as a result, Achilles regrets his decision. His pride doesn't just hurt the Greeks, it hurts himself. His rage doesn't just affect all of the people who have wronged him. It does not just get back at Agamemnon, who slighted him, but it also damages the people he loves. Phoenix 
recognizes this. Phoenix predicts that this is going to happen. And ultimately, the one line that we do get from Ajax after they leave Achilles, over at line 645, he says, Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, resourceful Odysseus, and it's time we go. I do not think we will accomplish what we were sent here to do. Our job now is to report this news quickly, bad as it is. They will be waiting to hear. Achilles has made his great heart savage. He is a cruel man and has no regard for the love that his friends honored him with, beyond anyone else who camps with the ships. Pitiless. A man accepts compensation for a murdered brother, a dead son. The killer goes on living in the same town after paying blood money, and the bereaved restrains his proud spirit and broken heart because he has received payment. But you, the gods, have replaced your heart with flint and malice because of one girl, one single girl, while we are offering you seven of the finest women to be found in many other gifts. Show some generosity and some respect. We have come under your roof, we few out of the entire army, trying hard to be the friends you care for most of all. Ajax is right here. Phoenix is right here. Achilles has gone too far. He is too proud, too angry. He is willing to sacrifice his friends, his family, the people that he cares about, and the people who care about him for the sake of appeasing his rage, his pride. Achilles is going too far, and Achilles will suffer for it. Phoenix has the best argument here, in short. Like, Achilles is going to damage himself with his rage. But Ajax's is pretty close. Ajax is basically saying, like, you dishonor yourself at this point. There are tons of people around you who care about you. We are some of them. Throw us a bone. But Achilles won't. And Achilles will suffer as a consequence. So in the next section, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see this all fall down around Achilles' ears. We're going to see the consequences of his rage. And notice that this rage binds Achilles with Zeus, as we've talked about earlier in this lecture, with all the passions that all of these men have suffered. This is a story about those passions, about that rage. So see where this rage gets him.